Silky Glasses Production on the Osiris Podcast Network. You know, death have no mercy in this land. In this land. Welcome to episode 6 of Dead to Me, Dead Medicine. This is going to be our holiday episode, though I think it's more appropriate to think of it as the solstice episode. Soon, the northern hemisphere will reach its maximum tilt away from the sun, signifying a time of cessation and darkness before the ever-cyclical dawn of renewal. If that sounds heavy, it's because it is. And this episode is dialed right into that vibe. As another year dissolves into gray, we turn inward to ponder the transient nature of all things, including ourselves and those we cherish. And so while we are still here, we gather closer the people we love, our family, blood or chosen, and embrace our shared joys and sorrows. We take time to reflect and to heal. Maybe it's not so bad in the dark. Besides, we know that the light is on the horizon bringing with it the intoxicating allure of begonias and daydreams. In this episode, we explore how shocks to our reality, such as near-death experiences and the loss of a loved one, can transform us in ways we can't always predict. And yet within suffering, there is the seed of renewal, an opportunity to become more connected with ourselves and those around us. That kind of healing requires time and space, which is exactly what music is made of. The Grateful Dead knew that, and maybe that's why their music has served as a balm for so many of us in times of crisis and uncertainty. Through the music and the community that surrounds it, we establish new connections and affirm old bonds. We become stronger, more resilient, with a heart of joy to go with the sadness we've experienced. That's what this episode is all about. Our executive producer, Kevin Hill, talks about his dead discoveries and the health calamity that nearly saw him merge with the infinite. And Maria Spinella, executive producer of The Don Lemon Show on CNN, describes her experiences as a fan and shares with us a profound story of personal loss and acceptance. Eduardo is off on an adventure, but I know he's here in spirit. So let's pop open the vial and take some dead medicine. Kevin, let's do this. So this is like the very first Dead to Me episode without Eduardo, who is on the other side of the planet. It is. But I'm so excited that we could have our executive producer step out of the shadows and into the spotlight here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember when we started, you were like, yeah, we should do this. I'm like, I don't, I don't need to talk. <laughs> well, it's not exactly your big debut because you've been the voice behind the Feed Your Head segment since we started. A little bit. With the exception of the last episode where we heard from a special guest. Our, our friend, the internet. Our friend, the internet. 
but we've talked a lot with our guests about what they like about this band and stuff and it's so funny because everyone seems to be like yeah 1972 mm-hmm. but we really haven't talked about the 80s that much and you're an 80s head i think right? I, I am that's where i got in uh you know touch of gray and all that but really it was in the 80s we had where i was from a group called the chemical people which is thanks to nancy reagan wait chemical people chemical people <laughs> that sounds like an 80s dance band it should have been <laughs> instead it was a weird like group meeting from uh really square people who thought that songs like i want a new drug should be banned oh my so this is like a straight up tipper gore kind of situation yeah yeah exactly drugs bad yeah it's drugs bad but anyway yeah and and so uh the idea you had druggy bands and stuff but then you would see the iconography of of the skull and the roses of the, of the grateful dead and everything that's like drugs plus satan right it was drugs plus satan and and because a skeleton implied satan we were in lynchburg jerry falwell land Ooh. and at the time for people who wanted to believe that particular side of things the iconography could not be more direct you know right. this this path leads to death and they weren't the only ones with skulls all the 80s metal bands had them too and if you went into spencer's gifts that den of iniquity you'd see a whole mm-hmm. bunch of skulls absolutely. absolutely but it's not like the church folk can tell the difference between the dead and slayer sure so you know this was like my introduction to it it was purely visual it was purely based on you know my family telling me like oh this stuff is bad and and yeah. at a certain age you believe but eventually you outgrow it yeah you're almost compelled to check it out right and the next thing you know you're smoking the devil's lettuce <laughs> right so the skulls got your attention mm-hmm. but what about the music like what was your actual entry point for understanding the band better my entry point was a weird thing and i think it really ties into the theme of what we're trying to do with this episode oh, um a friend of mine a neighborhood friend you know it's not somebody like i keep in touch with but when you're a kid you live in a neighborhood and you hang out with all those people you play football well i didn't play football but i understand that other kids might have well yeah 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 <laughs> but this kid his older brother was a deadhead uh-huh and he moved out and he was on drugs oh boy and so it was a target of the chemical people they would have meetings and you know they'd be like we've got people in our neighborhood even though he had moved into an apartment they must be dealt with yeah they must be dealt with and horrifically and sadly um this guy's brother ended up committing suicide that is a hell of a way to learn about a band yeah Mm -hmm. and i remember um seeing stuff brought from his apartment and i had only been in his apartment once or twice and i remember seeing stuff and and very clearly uh, the the skull and the roses, those images. So did the association creep you out or scare you at all? Yes, it did. It did at the time. And uh, as I got a little older, you get into high school, you discover like beer, you discover weed and stuff. You know, things loosened up a little. Yeah, but you still had those lurking impressions from childhood, right? Events like that. Like, they never leave your mind. You become more curious in that. And the skulls and roses keep popping up, I'm sure. I started seeing that and, like, wondering, like, what is what is this about? What's the symbology? Because I see all these people that I'm friendly with. You know, somebody will show up at school in a tie-dye t-shirt. It's a weird kind of peer pressure. Kind of, yeah. And so I would hear a few things. And then, really, it was um, Touch of Grey that cracked it open. Right. And I, it played in a, in a symphony. 
and we would sit there and piss off our conductor because there are a few deadheads in, in the symphony and and they had you know the single on cassette and would play it <laughs> busted down on bourbon street um well it is a really catchy single and of course you could dig further into the album in the dark right but then you get to like a song like hell in a bucket <laughs> oh man i love that song now but back then it was the bane of my existence it's like the guiltiest of guilty pleasures right, right. or ten thousand tons of steel yeah like, sorry brent no we're not we're not gonna do that yeah that's what fast forward is for <laughs> but, so you could like ignore it but he was always there because they were big they yeah. ended up on like mtv weirdly yeah and that video was played a lot but all of this was pretty new for the band in terms of the mass market attention. They didn't entirely shy away from it either. And that was their goal, right? Yeah, at least at that point. And I think it was probably Clive Davis's goal, too. He had brought them over to Arista Records and might have been starting to wonder why he had signed them to begin with. And then all of a sudden they had this improbable hit. Yeah, yeah. When right. I was a young asshole, I tended to hate stuff that was popular. I was one of those guys. And after Touch of Grey, the dead certainly got popular. Right. So I think they got demonized by some folks like me. But now I've got a new appreciation for that era, and I know I'm not alone. So besides the obvious stuff, what else made the 80s dead special for you? Specifically, what really, really hooked me on the dead after that was not Touch of Grey, was not In the Dark. It was, I believe it was the 1990 album uh, Without a Net. All, right. All of a sudden you have uh, this weirdly ecstatic live album yeah. that's heavy with Bobby songs um, and has some guy named Branford Marcellus on it. <laughs> right. Like, we didn't know who Branford Marcellus was in, you know, even in 1990 in Lynchburg, Virginia. Right. When you go back and listen to that stuff, and this is something that I think we've talked about, the people they jammed with, especially in the jazz community, uh, were like the jazz titans, mm -hmm. and, and that's what they were really trying to do. Yeah, and not just Branford. I mean, they played with Ornette Coleman, too. Correct. And Branford obviously understands the entirety of jazz history straight through the fusion era, mm -hmm. but Ornette is from another planet. That guy invented free jazz. So it's interesting that the dead could have these high caliber artists sit in and weave between the melodic stuff and the really out there improvisations. Yeah. Another thing that stands out about without a net is that it really captures what the band sounded like live in 1989 and 1990. Sure. And it has the benefit of audio quality that just didn't exist in earlier eras. Yeah, I definitely heard a tape before then. And then I heard that and I was like, well, this is something completely different. This is what I want. Yeah. And they did a, like a one-two punch there. They did that and then um, one from the vault. Right, which is an archival release from 1975. Correct. Like Blues for Allah era. Yeah, and that was just a genius move on their part. So you had this entry point for people where you could say, here's the history. Right. And it absolutely just like cracked my skull open. I was like, I had to drive uh, to my parents' company where I worked in summers and Every day, like plugging in my disc man, putting in without a net for the way down and one for the vault for the way back. Nice. Um, and, and when you're doing that over and over and over, driving like country roads and stuff, it, it just has an impact. It has like a David Lynch movie in your mind. Yeah, yeah. And for why people are discovering that now, I, I, I just think it's it's just as relevant as like a 77, a 68, a 72. Yeah, I can see that. Because we have all of this documented, you get to see this evolution of this band in real time. It's raw. It's the original like uh, reality programming. Well, it definitely reprograms reality, right? <laughs> for a while, before the internet, our friend the internet. <laughs> um, ha, ha. 
um, it you know it it was it was harder to put all the pieces together. Yeah, no doubt about it. So the eighties were definitely huge for the dad, but it also was a pretty dicey time mm-hmm. in some ways. Garcia fell into a diabetic coma in 1986, which they say was from an abscessed tooth, of all things. But he wasn't in great shape overall. Anyway, I've read interviews with him where he talks about the coma. Uh, When he was out, he says it was like being dead. But on the way back to consciousness, he experienced intense visions and hallucinations that apparently were more intense than any acid trip he'd ever been on. And... You have had a near-death experience yourself and also went through some otherworldly stuff. Sure. Can you tell us about how it all went down? And if you can, give us a sense of like what it actually felt like and how the experience affected your perception. To get all technical here for a second, uh, what, what happened was I had an atrial myxoma in my heart. And what that is is a non-cancerous tumor. Uh, it's a growth. It sounds like a death metal band. Yeah, it kind of is. Uh, although I named it Rupert, so I don't know. Oh, so a prog band then. Okay. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that, that works. Um, but it was about the size of an egg inside my heart. Wow, like, is that even possible? Well, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Yeah, hence the near-death part. I caught it randomly uh, on a medical visit, and the uh, you know the doctor's eyes... They went the full Roger Rabbit? You need to go see this person now. Damn. Yeah, and, and within three days, they were like, I was sitting in front of a surgeon, uh, Dr. Boyce at Washington Hospital Center. He's operating on people like uh, Bill Clinton. Well, that's good. Amongst other people. Uh, and, and, and him just telling me, he's like, oh, we have a choice. You can let me do this to you, which is cut out your heart. Oh, fun. Cut it open, pull the thing out, and then put it back together. Or you can just not go on. Is that what he said to Clinton? And, you know, there's, uh, I, I, I think we'd all like to think, like, we know what we'll do in that situation, but you don't. And, and yeah. I didn't for a while, but... I mean, how could you really? That's so shocking to hear. Um, and I was just like, okay, uh, I guess we're just going to have to deal with this. Right. And we did. And I should say that, you know, this is actually where it actually got really intense and weird for me beyond the obvious. I had been a music fan. It's just something that's been part of my DNA. Right. When they put you under for something like this, you cling to the things you love. Yeah. So it might be stating the obvious with that, but like it simplifies things. Right. So. Uh, I thought about um, my partner Daria, mm-hmm. and I and I felt music, and then I was under, and then eventually, if you're lucky, like I was, you come out of it, right. and that's where shit gets even weirder, oh. um, because uh, you know I have had a little experience with uh, hallucinogenics, but not like this. Not like this. Oh, man. There's something about uh, our our being. I think that music sort of unlocks. Yeah. We want to venture beyond this like sort of meat bag, mm-hmm. but there are consequences to that because, you know, the, the space is infinite after that. And then when you're taken offline or you're put in a state of extreme, extremely compromised uh, existence, uh, your brain is just doing weird things to keep you occupied. And they're not always the right things. In my case, you know, it was in ICU for two days and, um, uh, what ICU is is just sort of a cacophony of machine sounds, of of chatter, of moans. Of, it sounds like an industrial record. It's an industrial hell, oh. and I don't know the term for it, the actual term for it. But I mean, there's a term like people go crazy there. No kidding. Uh, and I certainly did a little. Yeah. Uh, you know, coming out of it because you know you're really by yourself. Sure. Even if somebody's there beside you, you can't move. Uh, you can't function normally. Yeah. And my brain just immediately 
switched over to music. Life preserver. And it was nothing but music. There were episodes in the hospital where sometimes it was glorious. Uh, you know, I had uh, an iPod so I could sit there and listen to it. I remember I listened to one from the vault nice. a lot. <laughs> um, um, and I listened to specifically like Birdsong. Beautiful. And Eyes of the World. Yeah. But at the same time, you still had the the machines in the background. It's like, this is the weirdest Grateful Dead remix album ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, after five days in the hospital of not being able to walk, I mean, literally, it's not like you stay in the, you, you have to stay in the bed, like you have to because you can't walk. Something combined with the music and everything, and it just unlocked this, this thing in me. And I was like, well, this is what saved me. So coming out of that, you know, you really doubled down on music because it meant so much. It wasn't just the involvement in music. It was the involvement in like what music does, what it means, what it means to people. I hope that like this podcast or my podcast, Junkie Glasses, what people get out of it is some respite, some some unlatching from reality that benefits them, or at least gives them a chance to figure out yeah. if they want to benefit in some way. Your life's fussy. Life's uh, aggressive. Life, you know, as organisms, we're like everything is is basically trying to kill us, yeah. and and that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. What we find here, um, to the theme of this episode, dead medicine, is simply a pathway. Internalizing and, and looking at stuff within inside yourself, and that can be terrifying, but it can also give you space to heal. And the dead, man, they're good for that. I don't know any other band that does that. Uh, I know bands that, that that take me like out in the outer space, but I, I don't know. Any band that can unlock that inner space quite like the dead. It's about that time. What do you say? You want to... Born in 1974 to Jerry Garcia and his then-wife Mountain Girl, Trixie Garcia grew up around the dead, but was hardly a deadhead. By the time she was in high school, she'd learned to be wary of the band's ardent followers. 
Sometimes a fan would get me alone and say trippy shit about the deep cosmic source of Grateful Dead music or what specific horseman of the apocalypse was coming, Trixie said. It's normal for kids to think their parents aren't cool, even if they're rock stars. But the dead, and Jerry in particular, didn't even bother to look the part. As Trixie recalled, I was so disappointed that my dad wasn't the cool, kind of dancing, spandex-clad rock star, and instead wore corduroy pants with orthopedic shoes. I wouldn't even call him a rock star, maybe cult leader in absentia. When Jerry died in 1995, Trixie struggled with the loss of a parent who she loved deeply, but in many ways felt neglected by. After his passing, she said that Grateful Dead music went from being too close to home to being too emotionally charged. Suddenly, I was listening to my father's voice from beyond the grave, and it was all just too much. Things changed when Trixie's sister Annabelle asked her to take over the Jerry Garcia family LLC. Suddenly, Trixie was tasked with managing her father's legacy, which meant reviewing Jerry's interviews, artwork, and live recordings. She soon came to appreciate what she had so long avoided. I took this thing that had been a burden most of my life and embraced it, she said. The healing power of music is an accepted fact in the Grateful Dead scene, and I'm experiencing it now. For the rest of my life, I'll look forward to hearing about new people discovering the Grateful Dead and how it will inevitably change their lives, too. Do you know of an interesting deadhead for us to feature? Drop us a line at info at deadtomepod.com and maybe they'll be on a future installment. background you're hearing dead and company playing box of rain from their show at city field on june 26 2016 a performance that meant quite a lot to our next guest maria spinella the executive producer of the don lemon show on cnn maria is here to talk about her ongoing love of all things grateful dead and how the band's music helped her recover from a devastating personal loss Join me in welcoming her. Maria, I'm so excited that you're on the show. You know, it's always interesting to me to get to know deadheads from various walks of life and professions. And it completely flips the script on my teenage assumptions that Grateful Dead fans are just shiftless layabouts. Because in reality, there's a long list of highly motivated, disciplined, and accomplished deadheads. Uh, The fact that you're an executive producer for a major media outlet is a case in point. So I just got to know your deadhead origin story. Can you tell us how and when you got on the bus? So I was probably about 13 years old and I got a stereo that had a a turntable and a tape deck and a tuner. Mm -hmm. And I think I only had about one or two tapes at that time. And my parents had a whole bunch of record albums, you know, that they had from you know, back in the late 60s and early 70s. Right. You know, when I got the stereo, that was pretty much what I had to play. Um, And those records were uh, things like, um, and I still love all these bands to this day, but uh, Crosby, Stills & Nash, Mm -hmm. Janis Joplin, the band, and in particular, Bob Dylan. I mean, I became like the hugest (laughs) 13-year-old Bob Dylan fan. Oh, that's great. Ever. And uh, my mind and my intellect at that time was just really blown away by uh, his songwriting and his lyricism in particular right and 
around that same time, Dylan and the Dead uh, came out. So I was getting mm-hmm. super into everything Bob Dylan. And then there was a new Bob Dylan enterprise. And that was kind of my first introduction to the Dead. My parents were definitely not deadheads of any sort. I think it's awesome that you found the Dead through another artist that you already love. Yeah. And at that time, you know, the late 80s, the Dead were playing more and more. You know, they had done the tour with Dylan, and then they were also right. playing more Dylan songs in their repertoire. Right. Less than hearing um, the songs on Dylan and the Dead, I started to be interested in hearing the Dead play Dylan songs. And then, of course, um, I became introduced to the vast catalog of the Dead and their own songs. That's so cool. I know the Dead had really high hopes for collaborating with Dylan because they'd been fans going all the way back to the start of his career. And there are stories about how Dylan showed up to rehearsals and he brought his dog and they hung out and they all agreed on what songs that they were going to play because both bands have really big catalogs. And then when they got in front of the stadium size audience, Dylan pulls a Dylan and just plays whatever he feels like playing, regardless of whether they'd actually rehearsed it or not. Which is funny, right? Because who is more notoriously unpredictable than Bob Dylan and who is more unscripted than the dead? So the (laughs) fact that that would be any other way than as you described. (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't be Dylan and the dead, that's for sure. So after you discovered the Dylan and the dead collaborative album, did that inspire you to go see some dead shows? Yeah, shortly after that. So, you know, as I became introduced to the band at that age, when you're a teenager, if you're into something, you kind of form a group with people who are into that, right? So in my school, I started to sort of find the other kids mm-hmm. who liked uh, the music that I liked and, and were into this band. And were there a lot of those kids at your school? There weren't too many. I mean, I did go to school in New England to a private school. Mm-hmm. So there's always, I think, at any New England private school in that time, there was a cohort of, um, you know, I guess, hippies or whatever you would call <laughs> them. I don't think uh, we thought of ourselves that way. but. Right. Um, you know, clicks get labels or whatever. So my first boyfriend in high school was a few years older than me. Uh, He was another student at my school and he was really into the band. Uh And so we went to my first show together when I was 15. Wow at the Nassau Coliseum. And looking back, I kind of can't believe that (laughs) I was allowed to do that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Permissive parenting. Yeah. (laughs) And those Nassau shows, I mean, they're not just legendary for the music. The parking lot scene was pretty intense too, right? Yeah. And that definitely was eye-opening and mind-bending and all of those things. I bet. I think that I was almost probably too young to even really understand uh, what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. And everything was fine at that show. And it was an incredible experience for me. And and so that was the first, but not the last. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the waning days of the band's touring years, but I was able to kind of catch the tail end of it. That's so great that you did that final decade of the band when Jerry Garcia was still there. Yeah. So this was the early 90s into the mid 90s. My first show was in 91. Uh, and my last show was the first Highgate oh, wow. show. Not the second one, but the first one. Awesome. That would be the one to see. The second one got a little bit out of control with the gate crashing. Uh, that's my neck of the woods, actually. I spent 15 years in Vermont, and I actually worked at an independent record store that was owned by the promoter of those Highgate shows. And everybody that I knew went... Even the people who didn't like the Grateful Dead or weren't part of the deadhead culture. But I was a young punk and there was no way in hell that I was going to go see a hippie band among hordes of the great unwashed or so I thought at the time. But now looking back, I kind of wish I had gone. And it's so cool to talk to people who were at those shows 
basically in my backyard. What could have been? Yeah, maybe I would have gone out on the road and like sold grilled cheese. But it's really great you were there. Well, I was glad that I was at the first uh, and not the second uh, yeah. from from the descriptions that I've heard. Right. I had just gotten back to Connecticut where I was living. I was in college at the time. I went to uh, school in Colorado. Nice. And we took the drive up from Connecticut to Vermont with a few people that I knew, a combo of people from the Colorado scene and the Connecticut scene. And mm-hmm. it was a great experience all around. The drive up was great. Beautiful, and as we got right? closer to the venue, we uh, saw local people in the area who had set up parking areas in their lawns. They were mm-hmm. sitting on their front porches, you know, with their whole family watching this caravan of, <laughs> mm-hmm. of deadheads arrive in their community. You know, then we got to the parking lot and we got our spot and everything. It was festive. And, uh, you know, I didn't observe any of the uglier sides of the dead scene. Right. And I think a lot of that, as you mentioned, was part of the second Highgate show. And it continued to dog the band on that final tour. Yeah. The lightning strikes and the stage collapses and the overdoses. Yeah. It got pretty grisly. But this sounds like the opposite of that. Beautiful drive, beautiful part of the country. The locals being totally bemused by all the hippies. Yeah, and, you know, not to like over glorify things, but it did remind me a little bit of maybe like driving to Woodstock. Right. You know, and what people must have thought, you know, at that time. It's almost as if every show is a giant family reunion, and that probably extends to today's spinoff bands, too, and the folks who come together in order to experience some aspect of this larger family dynamic that connects people across generations. What do you think is behind that connectivity? It's a great topic to explore. I think that it might be in part to do with how iconoclastic the band is. Right. And when you can see a group of people who are kind of on the outside, I guess, of, or if you feel like you're a little bit on the outside, like I felt when I was a teenager. Right. And then you see this group of people who are operating outside for so many decades, the usual parameters of the music scene, the expectations that people would have had of them. Yeah, outside the music business itself. Yeah, and they sort of created this whole other traveling Americana roadshow that people could either follow extensively if they wanted to or pop in and out of. Right. But either way, if you meet a fellow traveler, there seems to be this mutual recognition that happens. And that still seems to be the case within the broader Grateful Dead family, even 20 years after Jerry Garcia passed. Totally. Whoever you were like standing next to at a show, they became your friend. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, meeting somebody and realizing like, oh, wow, you like the dead? Then you'd start talking about what tapes you had and you know, I never had any good tapes. I had like, you know, 19th generation, <laughs> you know, right. tapes that were... But you cherished them. Yeah. And uh, even now, I go to a lot of concerts. My husband and I love to see music. I'm into all kinds of different bands, and so is he. Right. There aren't any other shows that I ever go to where you're like automatically able to strike up conversations with mm-hmm. people and talk with them. And it's kind of assumed that you're all open to being around each other and to communicating with each other. And right. I don't really feel that way when I go to other shows. Like you're all separately there waiting for the show to begin. Sure. You're not necessarily like a group unit. Right. There's something cohesive about participating in the Grateful Dead culture. And that's why I think of it as a family. Obviously, families inspire a bond of connection, but along with that, there's the pain of loss. 
because we're all temporary. Like the song Stella Blue says, there's nothing you can hold for very long. The Dead, as a band, experienced plenty of loss within their family, culminating with Jerry Garcia's death. And you've gone through that pain in your own life. Can you tell us about your experiences of losing a family member and healing and how it relates to the dead? Yeah, so this is, you know, something that has really changed my life in a fundamental way. So Mm -hmm. as I've been talking about being a teenager and getting into the band um, and and the record albums that I listened to of my parents, uh, I'm the oldest of three. Mm -hmm. It was me and my brother, my brother Joe, who's four years younger than me, and then my younger sister Laura, who's six years younger than me. And at that time, when I was in my early teens, you know, whatever I got into, my brother Joe got into. Right. Great to have an older sister. And we were best friends from, you know, the time that he was born until two years ago uh, when he died at age 36. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just something that changed my life in just such a fundamental way. I can't even... Uh, can't imagine. ...fully express yet how big a impact the loss of my brother has been. Yeah. People can understand that kind of grief and loss until and unless it happens to you because mm-hmm. it changes you on, on a cellular level, I think. And so my brother and I, like I mentioned the tapes that I had, so I would mm-hmm. get these tapes and my brother was very artistic. And so, you know, back in that day, you decorate your tape covers, yeah. you know, yourself, you'd like draw on them. So my brother was the one who would, who would do that for me and he would draw these, me these amazing tape covers. That's and so beautiful. You know, kind of present them to me and I would, ooh and awe over them and be so thankful and we would uh wow do you still have those tapes yeah i do i still do have them wonderful yeah i i I realized uh after he died that my pack rat nature uh (laughs) was working to my advantage there that's a blessing and i used to drive carpool with my younger brother and his friends and Mm -hmm. and we had about a half an hour drive to school and so we'd be listening to all these songs and singing along with each other that's sweet and at that time it was just that was just what we did. It wasn't, I didn't know that later on it would turn into something that, mm-hmm. it, it was like a place was being built for me Wow. to go back to uh, when I needed it. Wow. Our lives are comprised of these fleeting moments and we don't really understand necessarily what they mean at the time, but music is such an incredible vehicle to transport us back to those moments and It's so wonderful that you had those experiences with your brother, and you also have his artwork on the cassette tapes, which can transport you as well. Can't get that with a Spotify playlist. Right, right. And you helped him develop an appreciation for the band. What was it that he loved? Oh, yeah. He became a musician, uh, both personally and professionally in later years. But at that time, he was learning how to become a drummer. Nice. Um, And so, of course, the the dead has two drummers. Right. The rhythm devils are plenty to chew on. So that was a big draw for him. And Mm -hmm. it was something, again, that we shared that we related to that wasn't necessarily mainstream. It wasn't necessarily, it definitely wasn't pop. Right. Um, it wasn't what a lot of the other kids were into. So we had each other to share that with. Yeah. And even uh, later when I was in college, I had to drive from Connecticut to Colorado and sometimes he would drive out there with me. And I remember in particular one road trip where we pretty much listened to the dead the whole way. And uh, nice. we'd be like, Bobby song, Jerry song, you know, as we went along the way, all the way through. Again, I didn't know at the time that that would become 
like a a place where I could go again right uh, and be with my brother again I'm so glad that you have that it seems incredibly meaningful in coming to terms with your brother's loss which I know is not something that you can ever recover from and yet time keeps winding on and I wonder how you or any deadhead really relates to the band as we get older how our perspectives might evolve you know when you're a kid and you get into the dead it's probably about being able to go to shows and partying in the parking lot and dancing in the arena or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and it's fun and it's revelatory in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. but I don't think that the depth of the music and Robert Hunter in particular his lyrics right and all of the references to death and grief and yearning Mm -hmm. uh, really become apparent at that age until you've had some time and some water under your own bridge to be able to really understand what they mean. I agree. And I know that from what I've read about Robert Hunter and his songwriting, he didn't totally always understand exactly what a lot of these lyrics and songs meant. Right. And purposely didn't want to talk too much about them or or give too much mm-hmm. interpretation of their meaning so that people could find their own meaning in them. Yeah, and they work on all these different levels. I sometimes call Robert Hunter's poetry Americana koans, and in some ways they function almost as parables. There's down-and-out characters and heroic stances and hard-scrabble environments and precarious situations But on this other, more metaphysical level, there's a deep examination of the ephemeral nature of existence with all of its beauty and frailty, the skull and the rose, which we always go back to. Yeah. And it's amazing how much of that is encoded in the Grateful Dead aesthetic. Do you think it's by design or an accident of happenstance that we nonetheless relate to? I mean, death and loss permeates this band from the time that Jerry Garcia was five years old and he lost his dad. Yeah. And all the people that they lost along the way, whether it was, you know, Pigpen or their friend Janis Joplin or... Yeah, Rex Jackson. Yeah, exactly. Everybody all down the line to Jerry, obviously, himself. Right. And I think, as I said, if you haven't experienced that kind of traumatic grief yourself, you don't understand that it changes you on a cellular level. And I think that the band was changed all along the way. No doubt. Even the name, the story of the name of the band, The Grateful Dead, right? That they they pulled out a a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary and opened up the page and there was the name in this anecdote about a traveler who comes upon the spirit Mm -hmm. of a dead man and helps that spirit out and then is later revealed to be another traveler on the road who thanks him for helping him. Right. There's a certain morbidity that's baked right into the cake here. Mm Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the band is so committed to the joyous and ecstatic moment. Jerry Garcia, in particular, seemed to always strive to reflect the truth of the current situation as a musician and as a human being, whether that situation was glorious or a glorious mess. Not everyone has that level of commitment, but the dead seem to strike that bell every time. And maybe that's because they're willing to recognize how finite everything actually is. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what life is. Life wouldn't be precious if it didn't end at some point. 
Right. So you're celebrating that life, but you are surrounded by the awareness that someday you could be going through the experience of not being able to do that anymore and not having somebody with you who's been precious to you. Right. And we come back to that idea of connectivity. The band created this space where people could have almost spiritual experiences with one another and create these memories and celebrate these moments, even if we know that one day they will all dissipate. I think human beings are always looking for connection. Mm -hmm. And I think throughout all time, music has always been a part of community, of observance. That isn't everything from Gregorian chants to Native American music. You know, you can go on and on and on through all of the cultures of the world. Yeah, and that's something that members of this band really understand. Yeah. Look at Mickey and everything he does with world music. Yeah, a true explorer. And as you point out, in other cultures around the world, music is used for a range of purposes. I think healing is one of its more important uses, even though we don't really focus on it so much in the West. I'm sure you have some perspectives here due to the loss of your brother. You know, his death was unexpected and he died in Mexico on a trip and he was alone when he died. And so there were... Uh um, there are things about his death that I'll, that will never be known uh, or revealed uh, ever. Oh. And so I had a tremendously difficult time dealing with that, you know, sort of like trauma on top of trauma. Yeah. And so what happened to me at that time with the music was that this sounds strange, but it's like I was simultaneously trying to unravel the mystery of his real life death. Mm-hmm. And I would also be listening you know, almost constantly when I wasn't working or taking care of my family or, you know, dealing with the things that I needed to go on and deal with, listening to this music that we had shared together and finding nuggets in almost every little song, a little mystery or a little line or a little message that I would feel connected to him, you know, um, and it was super healing to me. It was like the only thing that was helping me at that time. Wow. I mean, there's probably no such thing as closure, especially not in your situation, but it is really meaningful that you have this way to maintain a connection with your brother. Almost every song will have a line that I'll feel like connects me to him in some way. It's beautiful. And, and, and you know, sometimes it's just like a little thing. I mean, sometimes it's a whole song, like Box of Rain, which just, yeah. you know. Well, you know, Phil wrote that for his dad at a time of uh, grieving and loss, and and Hunter expertly intuited what he was going through and managed to channel that into the the lyric. I think when somebody dies, people always look for signs, or or you feel like there's a Mm -hmm. sign. Is this a sign? Mm -hmm. And I don't, on the one hand, I don't believe in that necessarily, but on the other hand, I think it's natural for people, because as I said, you're always looking for a connection. People are always looking for connections, and I think Mm -hmm. that's where this idea of, like, is this a sign comes from, so... Yeah, well, on a certain level, those signs are as real as anything else because they reflect an experience within yourself. Mm -hmm. So there was a a couple things that happened shortly after my brother died. Uh, Actually, right before he died, um, you know, we had wanted to go to Fare Thee Well together, but I I had had uh, my second child, and I was was nursing, and I didn't feel like I could leave uh, my baby, you know, to go to Chicago and do that. And uh, so we didn't do it. And then uh, Dead & Company kind of grew out of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember saying to my husband, I'm going to get tickets for my brother and I to go to City Field because, you know, he lived in Queens and I live in the New York area also. Mm-hmm. And then like right after that was when Joey died. And so uh, 
I got tickets anyway, and I went to City Field. And some people are kind of hard on Dead and Company. Yeah, some people. But it's like you have to go on, right? You know, even when you're shattered. And the band was shattered, and they, you know, that music wants to live on. The people want to go on. They want to be able to play their music. The fans want to hear it. Yeah. Um, and so I was on my way to the second Dead and Company show, uh, which I went to by myself. The first one I went to with my husband, we, we wore two of my brother's dead shirts there. Nice. Um, that was, you know, something that we did for him. And I called um, David Ganz's show, Tales from the Golden Road. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And he took my call. And, and I was telling him about my brother, and he was so nice about it. That's great. Uh, at that time, I was having a, even a harder time getting through the story than I, than I do now. You've done really well here. But David Gans is a great listener. Yeah, absolutely. And he said, what do you want to hear tonight? And I said, well, I, I want to hear Box of Rain. And uh, he said, well, I hope you get to hear it. And then they played it at that show. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, they did play it. Wow. And then I saw later on Twitter that some guy who had been listening to, uh, to the show, Tales from the Golden Road, and then the show, right. the, the Dead & Company show, had heard me on the phone. And he tweeted David Gans and he said, hey, that lady from Tales from the Golden Road got box of rain for her brother tonight wow that's amazing and it's not like it's a song that was in the regular grateful dead set list often well there's that connection you know yeah people heard somebody heard me out there what a beautiful and powerful thing and i think it really does illustrate that you can continue to experience these magical things in your life even after you've suffered great loss like i said earlier you have to go on life has to go on you have to go on music has to go on Love has to go on. Connection has to go on somehow. And it may not be in the way that you had, but you find a way. And that's a wrap for 2018. We'll catch you in 2019. Don't forget to check us out online at deadtomepod.com. Twitter and Facebook at deadtomepod. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time. Bye.